0: Will you go to heaven when you die? Will you go to heaven when you die? I would expect that most, if not all of us, sitting in this room would say, Yes, absolutely, resoundingly. I will go to heaven when I die. If we were to pose that same question to people in our community, let's say we were to dismiss church right now and just go over to Kolaran Lakes and just knock on doors and ask you that question. I kind of feel that we would get a similar reply I believe that if we were to ask people In our community, in our neighborhoods If they will go to heaven When they die They will answer yes A 2014 CBS News poll Reveals as much When asked if they would go to heaven When they died 82% of Americans responded yes While only 11% responded no And 7% responded That they didn't know so the vast majority of our of people in our country, even as things become more and more secular and the Christian worldview becomes less and less accepted and pronounced, the vast majority of people in our country believe they will go to heaven when they die. But we don't really need a public opinion poll to tell us what the larger community or the larger population thinks. Just observe how people respond to the news that someone has died. People are quick to place the deceased into heaven, right? He's gone to a better place. Heaven has gained another angel. Even R.I.P. Rest in peace. Our ways of us, of ways of our population, our culture, of believing or, or understanding that when a person dies, they will probably, most likely, go to heaven. Popular theology just assumes that when people die, they will go to heaven. It's almost as if that's our birthright, our human birthright, that just by virtue of being born, as long as you don't do something very, very, very sinful, like a Hitler, right? Or like a Genghis Khan. Or like some other notorious villain from history. That if you just simply live as a human being, you will go to heaven when you die. Just because we lived... The popular culture believes that we will go to heaven when we die. But such popular notions of easy access to heaven run contrary to the teaching of Jesus. Entering into the kingdom of God, going to heaven, is a difficult thing. In fact, in our passage this morning, Jesus will say that it is even impossible to enter into the kingdom if the matter is left in our hands. Today's passage is going to highlight... That difficulty of entering into the kingdom of God And because it is difficult Jesus graciously reveals to us How we might enter into that salvation That God provides in His kingdom We're going to look at Luke chapter 18 this morning In verses 15 to 30 Luke 18 beginning in verse 15 Now they were bringing infants to Him That He might touch them And when the disciples saw it They rebuked them But Jesus called them them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. two kind of parts of this passage, but really the point is the same. It is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. We want to see this morning what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to save us and what God requires of us to enter into the promise of eternal life. We see that through these two encounters with Jesus. First in verses 15 to 17, His reception of little children... And then in verses 18 to 30, his interaction with the rich ruler. So let's look consider each of these in turn. In the first passage, verses 15 to 18, Jesus points to little children as examples of how to enter the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 15, the passage opens with people who are unidentified just by the word they. People are bringing these little children to Jesus. In fact, the word infants there indicates that they are very, very little. It's typically the word in Greek that is used to refer to a newborn child all the way up to probably early toddlerhood, maybe, what, about two years old or so. These are very, very young children. In fact, the word is used to describe the newborn baby Jesus in chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the word could be applied more generally speaking to any child, but usually this is referring to very, very young children. It seems to be that these are very, very young children being brought to Jesus. Now, why are they being brought to Jesus? Luke says in verse 15, so that he, Jesus, might touch them. Matthew and Mark's accounts of this same story indicate that those who brought these infants to Jesus were doing so, so that he might bless them and pray for them. In fact, the idea there of touching confers maybe something special, something, something relational, in the act of blessing or, or praying with it. So when you want to bless someone, you want to really encourage someone, you might put the, your hand on their back or something. Or when you pray for someone, you might grab their shoulder or, or grab their arm or hold hands with them to indicate something personal. That Jesus is touching them for a specific reason, and that reason is to bless them and to pray for them. The Old Testament highlights the significance of this idea of blessing. You might go back to the Old Testament story in the book of Genesis, to the story of of Isaac and his two twin sons, Jacob and Esau, who were vying for their father's blessing at the end of his life. That blessing, if they would receive the blessing of their father, would bring with it uh, familial status and power, financial uh, benefits, even the promise of a successful destiny. We see how that plays out in the book of Genesis in the stories of Jacob and Esau. When the Israelites gathered together for worship at the tabernacle or the temple, at the conclusion of the service, the priestly benediction pronounced God's blessing over them. That blessing was meant to reassure them of their covenant standing before God, and it was meant to assure them of God's perpetual favor and grace over the community, that as they live life together, that God would be gracious to them, that he would, he would shine His face upon them, He would bless them with all kinds of good things. So those who were bringing the infants to Jesus sought a, a general blessing that would result in God's favor and grace upon their children. And who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have God's special favor and God's special grace? So they're, they're bringing these children to Jesus for this prayer of blessing. But when we consider that the infant mortality rate in the first century Roman Empire was about 30 percent, that means that... Three children, three out of every ten children who were born, died in their first year of life. And when we consider that only 50%, about half of children born actually made it to adolescence, then we can understand even more this sort of apprehension, right? This fear that my child might not make it. And so they're desiring God's blessing on that child for life, for a future for a destiny that would get them past those, those difficult childhood years into sort of this sense of, of, of assurance that, that life would be much better for them as an adult. And so we can understand these parents who brought their children to Jesus seeking out this divine favor for their children's lives. But we see the response of the disciples also in verse 15 that they were aggressively preventing the infants from coming to Jesus. Luke uses the word rebuke that the disciples rebuked them. That's a very, very strong word in the Gospels. It typically is used to, to, to speak about rebuking an evil spirit or rebuking a demon. When Jesus casts out demons, He often rebukes them. He confronts them aggressively calls them to come out so these disciples are aggressively confronting these adult caretakers and, and their infants and they're kind of cordoning off Jesus from these children they don't give a reason why they are doing this perhaps they see it as an infringement upon Jesus' already pressed time Jesus is, everybody's looking, demanding Jesus' attention Jesus doesn't have time for this perhaps they see this as a less important priority for Jesus when he has bigger and better ministry opportunities in front of him and perhaps they see the children here, as many of the Jews did during this time, that they're a nuisance not to be bothered with. But the point to make here, I think, is that the disciples are clearly out of step with Jesus. Their priorities and convictions for Jesus' ministry do not reflect their own. Notice how Jesus handles this in verse 16. He, he calls the infants to himself. And the word called there is a, a very descriptive term that means to call to oneself or to call to one side, Jesus is saying, bring them to me. Do not hinder them. Don't restrict their access. Bring them near. Bring them close. He reflects that in his statement in verses 16 and 17, as he, he tells both those who are bringing the children to Jesus and also the disciples, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So in this statement, I think Jesus is making two important points. One that is more implicit and one that is more explicit. Let's consider the implicit point first. What we can discern from what Jesus says here in verse 16 is that Jesus values and cares for children. Jesus values and cares for children. That's reflected in the first part of verse 16. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Now, in the Roman world of Jesus' day, children were perhaps the most marginalized group in society. The Greeks and Romans were well known for their advocacy of abortion and infanticide. They would oftentimes take children out to remote places and let them just die in that barren land. Sometimes, many times, unscrupulous people will go out to those barren areas and find these children that were left for exposure and they would take them and use them for nefarious purposes. They would raise them up for the purpose of being a gladiator or a prostitute. They would deliberately disable them so they might be beggars. That was a way of uh, attracting income. So very uh, unscrupulous people would take these children and use them for terrible ends in Roman society. Even in Judaism, rabbis are exhorted not to bother with children. According to a common proverb of the first century, morning sleep and midday wine and children's talk put a man out of the world. Can't be bothered with kids. They are time staffing. There is no value or benefit from them. One writer says that in the ancient world, the, the ancient world did not have a romantic notion of children as we do today. Children as an important, childhood as an important developmental stage is a modern phenomenon. Rather, it was looked down upon as a necessary interval from birth to adulthood, about the ages of 12 to 14. It was just sort of this period you kind of had to get through. Children were to be considered like the outcasts, like the marginalized. But Jesus demolishes this attitude that is prevalent even among his own disciples. Jesus welcomes the children to come to him. He gives them His time and attention. He conveys their worth and their value. He offers them His love and His care. He pronounces God's blessing over them. They have a place in His kingdom if they will approach Him in faith as any other person is able to do. Now again, I don't think this is the main point of this passage, but it is an important corollary point that I think we need to draw out. Jesus cares For children. Jesus saw children as an integral part of His ministry. So much so that He would include blessing them and praying for them as a necessary part of establishing the Kingdom of God as healing the sick and casting out demons and calling other peoples to Himself. Preaching the Gospel was an important part of Jesus' ministry. Calling children to Himself was just as important. Jesus sees children as an integral part of his ministry. So the question I would ask to you is, do you see children in the same way? Do you see children as Jesus sees them? Do you show the same kind of care and affection that Jesus does? Do you pray for them as Jesus prayed for them? Consider your own children. Do you pronounce God's blessing them do you disciple them are you actively leading your children toward the kingdom of god maybe that's something that we and as parents especially when the children are in your home and you're around them almost 24 7 that we can adopt the attitude of the disciples stay away right don't come give me my space so I would ask you to ask God to help you see children, especially your own children, in the way that Jesus sees them. That you would receive your children in the same way that Jesus received these children. Make leading your own children, leading them and discipling them, bringing them to the doorstep of the kingdom, your highest priority, or one of your highest priorities. We need to be discipling Our children, we need to be leading them to Jesus. We cannot force them into the kingdom, but we can lead them by the hand to the front door. And to the children, I would say to you that I want you to know and understand that you are very, very special to Jesus. This passage teaches us that. That you are welcome to come to Him. That He loves you and He cares for you. He welcomes you to come to Him. He wants you to know Him and to understand His gospel. He wants you to repent of your sins and to trust in Him. He wants you to walk with Him and give your life to Him. And so I would encourage you to do what many adults do, even your parents probably do. Open your Bibles and read your Bibles. Read more about Jesus. Read more about His love for you. Learn about Him. Learn about what He requires of you. Learn what it means to believe the Gospel. Learn what it means to repent of your sins and trust in Him. Talk to your parents about what it means to follow Jesus. This is what God wants for you. Don't think that you are on the outside. Don't think that church is just for your parents or big people. Don't think you just got to come and sit in here and just go through the motions. This is for you. You are part of our church family. You are part of our church community. And we want you more than anything else to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That He is your Savior. That He loves you and He's calling you to come to Him. The other point I think we need to make from this passage is the more explicit point that I think Jesus makes is that we must receive the kingdom of God like a child in order to enter into it. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? First, I think he means that we must acknowledge our spiritual poverty and neediness. We must acknowledge our spiritual poverty and neediness. Again, the Jews considered children to be sort of an an outcast or marginalized class of people. They were like the sick, the diseased, the demon-possessed, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, the poor. All these who were despised people, sinful people. Just in that worldview, in that world, children were categorized amongst those people. Of course, Jesus repeatedly acknowledged that these were the very kinds of people that he had come to redeem and bring into his kingdom. These are the types of people that outwardly represent what we are really inwardly. We are spiritually like children. We are lowly. We are weak. We're sinful people. By our sinfulness, we have alienated ourselves from God. We have excluded ourselves from His care and blessing. We are spiritually needy. We are spiritually impoverished. Apart from Him, we suffer the ill effects of our sin in this life. And we will suffer His judgment for our sins in eternity. So we need to be rescued. We need the love and care of God. We need His blessing. So to receive the kingdom of God like a child first means that we assume the status and position of children. We must admit our spiritual neediness. We must admit our spiritual poverty. We must humble ourselves before God. In fact, the posture that we should take is very much like what's represented in the uh, tax collector, in his prayer in the previous passage that we looked at last week. You remember that he was—he had gone into the temple to pray, and he was standing far off from other people. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We can put children in that same category. They are representative of that kind of attitude. We must humble ourselves before the Lord, We must humble ourselves like a child if we are to enter the kingdom of God. Secondly, Jesus means that we must receive him and his kingdom by faith. When we possess a childlike humility, we understand the greatness of God. And when we begin to see something of the greatness of God, we understand our own personal unworthiness. We see our sinfulness. We see our impoverished standing before him. We acknowledge that we deserve His righteous wrath for our sins, that we are unworthy to be in His presence, much less to be in a relationship with Him. But humility does not lead us to despair. The same humility that helps us to recognize that God is great and He is sovereign and He is righteous and He is holy is the same humility that recognizes that God is kind and merciful and gracious and compassionate, that He calls sinners to himself, that he offers salvation full and free. Humility, true humility leads us to repent of our sins and to trust God to save us through the saving merits of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, remember here at this point in the story that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is calling these children to come to him. He is telling his disciples that unless you become like a child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. He is still on his way to Jerusalem, but he is going to Jerusalem to die. Why? To save sinful people. That's his mission. That's his purpose. He will fulfill that. And so, like children, we receive God's offer of salvation in the kingdom of God by faith. There must be faith. Childlike faith, humble faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God the scripture says. Without faith we attempt to justify ourselves through our own self-righteousness. Without faith we remain spiritually impoverished and needy. So Jesus calls us to receive his kingdom like little children humbling ourselves before him and trusting in him alone for salvation. Think okay that's That's great, no problem, right? Except that this is a very difficult thing. If it were easy, we'd all rush to the... Everyone would rush to the kingdom. But acknowledging our sinfulness is a difficult thing. Admitting that we are spiritually needy is a difficult thing. Humbling ourselves before God is a difficult thing. Repenting of our sins is a difficult thing. And trusting ourselves to God, who alone is king... When we want to be kings of our own kingdom, that is a difficult thing. If it were easy to receive the kingdom of God like a child, everyone would do it. But it's a difficult thing. Now, it may be difficult to receive the kingdom of God like a child, but it's not impossible. Why? Because God gives grace. God gives grace. We sang about it this morning. God is mighty to save. He gives the Holy Spirit to awaken our dead hearts. He leads us to hear the truth of the gospel. Aren't you glad that someone shared the gospel with you? That was in God's divine providence. God brought you to a church or God brought someone to your life to share that gospel message with you. God gave you the ability to meditate upon the goodness of the gospel. God called your name so that you might receive Him. Brothers and sisters, if God's not involved, then yes, it is an impossible thing to enter the kingdom of God. But God is involved. He shows His mercy. He shows His grace. And so if you happen to be here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would call you to what Jesus says here. Humble yourselves before Him. Receive Him and His kingdom like a child. See your own spiritual neediness. Repent of your sins. And trust in Him for salvation. For those of us who know the Lord Let us be thankful that God has worked in our hearts so that we might respond to the gospel like a child and then keep walking in that childlike humility. As we walk with Christ, we want to continue trusting in Him just as a child trusts in His parent. We want to keep walking in childlike humility. We want to continue continually rely upon Christ. We want to continually entrust ourselves to Him so that He might work out His sanctification in us. It doesn't stop. The moment we believe, we continue to walk as children. So that first passage bolsters that idea that entering into the kingdom of God is a very difficult thing. The second passage again reinforces that. That that theme of how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God comes up again in Jesus' encounter with this rich ruler in verses 18 to 30. We see there in verse 18 that a ruler approached Jesus and asked him how he could inherit eternal life. It's another way of speaking about entering into the kingdom of God. There's sort of the inter juxtaposition here of, of this language of entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life, being saved. All those things are kind of pointing to the same idea. What's interesting is we don't know much about this ruler. We do know from verse 23 that he was extremely rich. Matthew 19 verse 22 mentions that he was a very young man. But his identification here as a ruler may indicate that he was a Pharisee. Luke typically uses this word to describe Pharisees throughout his gospel and also the book of Acts. And in fact, this man's emphasis here on the perfect keeping of the law fits that Pharisaic mindset. In fact, I think as I was reading it through this passage this week, I couldn't help but relate it to the pre-Christian version of Paul. If you read about Paul's life as he describes his life in Galatians chapter 1 and in Philippians chapter 3, before he became a Christian, this man emulates very much what we see in the life of uh, of Paul before he became a Christian. And so this man was very, very works-oriented, very, very uh, uh, self-righteous-oriented. What could he do? In fact, that question is very, very telling. As he approaches Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is, again, very much like that Pharisee back in the previous passage that's in the temple praying. And he's sort of soaking in, just basking in his self-righteousness, where he was saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, just simply giving off a list of what he has done to make himself acceptable to God. Here he was, all self-righteous. He had, he had done all these things to earn God's approval. And we see something of that mindset in this rich ruler's question here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus answers the question. Before he answers it specifically, he says in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus first, he responds to this idea that he is a good teacher. The ruler has addressed him as a good teacher. His response calls the ruler then. He says, look, if you really see me as good, then you've got to believe what I'm telling you. If you call me good teacher, then accept what I am telling you. Respond to what I am telling you. Uh, If you call me good when God alone is good, then I must have the authority to give to you the instruction, the answer that you're looking to. Now, whether or not this ruler is being genuine, we don't know. He could have just simply been flattering Jesus. But Jesus latches onto that idea of goodness. Only God is good. No one is good except God alone. And if that is true, and you call me good teacher, then you must hear what I have to say. You must hear because these words are words from God himself. I am God's Messiah. I am God's representative here to share the truth with you, to lay before you what God requires of you. So even before Jesus answers the guy's question here, he is drawing him in to really consider what Jesus is saying. Don't give it lip service. Hear. Hear what I have to say and then respond rightly to it. And then in verse 20, he answers the ruler's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 20, you know the commandments. And he lists off the 7th, 6th, 8th, ninth, and 5th commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, these commandments belong to the so-called second table of the law. Those laws that that deal primarily with how we treat other people. These are the commands that really can be summarized under the second and greatest commandment that Jesus taught: love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that Jesus linked this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, with the first and greatest commandment, a, a, a summary of the first table of the law. It deals with our relationship with God, how we treat God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus is basically saying that by keeping these commandments, by doing these things, you show evidence of your love for God and you show evidence of your faith in Him. If you are truly doing these things, then it must be born out of a true love for God and a true faith in God. Well, the ruler responds back with an interesting reply. I think if Jesus were to say this to us, we would all be crushed, right? Right? especially as how he interprets these commandments in the New Testament. Do not commit adultery, right? If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? Do not murder. If you're angry with your brother, it's as if you murdered him in your heart. Do not steal. I mean, these are things we can go through each one and we find ourselves to be lawbreakers. And yet this man seems so encouraged. I've done all these things, you said. I've, I've kept them since my youth from the time when I sort of passed from the childhood to adulthood. There's that 12, 13, 14 kind of age range. Passing out of those those childhood years into adulthood, I've been keeping these commandments. I've been doing these very things. He's, he's kind of lauding himself, right? I, I've done these things. I've, I've kept them. I've made myself attentive to, to learn them and understand them and apply them to my life. And so Jesus presses back one more time. Doesn't, doesn't deconstruct this man's understanding of his commandment keeping but he just goes one step further he says all uh says in verse 22 when jesus heard this he said to him one thing you still lack so all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me so the rulers kept all jesus accepts the premise of this man's statement you've kept all these commandments okay great one more thing to do so all of your possessions Give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me as a disciple. And then, by doing those things, Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, you will inherit eternal life, the thing that he's asking about. You will inherit eternal life and all of its glorious promises if you do this thing that I have just commanded you. Now, as we reflect on that command, we might be a little confused because that doesn't sound like the gospel, right? It, doesn't sound, it sounds to us, from our perspective... That Jesus would not even have accepted the premise of this man's question. You're, you're establishing yourself on sort of this works-based righteousness. You don't need to do that. Repent of your sins, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. But Jesus accepts the premise of the man's question and then follows up with this rather strange sounding command that to our ears sounds like a works-based righteousness. But I think this question is purposeful considering the ruler's mindset. I don't think, and some have tried to, to take this this way, I don't think that Jesus intends this to be a requirement for all of his disciples. If this were the case, I think we would see this more often taught. Jesus teaching this in the gospel, we see more of it in the New Testament. But I think what Jesus says here in verse 22 really exposes what's in the ruler's heart. It may in one sense reveal to the ruler that he really hasn't kept all the commandments as he thinks he has. What Jesus commands this ruler to do in verse 22 really is sort of a a positive spin on the 10th commandment, right? Do not covet your neighbor's wife, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's possessions. In other words, this command is sort of the, the, the positive spin on that one. In other words, don't covet what other people have, but take what you have and give to others. The ruler's refusal to keep this then is a practical failure of his keeping any of the commandments. It really exposes his need for salvation. This additional command in verse 22 may also expose the ruler's idolatry. Remember what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 16, verse 13? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when Jesus gives the command to this ruler, he's really driving a wedge here. Who will you serve? Right now, you're trying to serve two masters. You're trying to serve God, and you're trying to serve money. And so when a choice is placed before this man as to which God he would serve, what does the ruler choose? He chooses the God of money. And in that sense, he has shown himself to be faithless to both the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and also the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And finally, the command here to sell his possessions and distribute the proceeds to the poor reveals the ruler's need to trust God fully. By keeping his proceeds here, there would be the temptation to rely upon himself. If he divests himself of all that he has, and goes and follows Jesus, who must he trust then? Who's going to provide for what he needs? It would have to be God himself. And so his refusal here to sell all that he has and distribute to the poor shows his implicit trust in himself. In fact, I find it interesting. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. The positive example here, the positive spin on this story comes with the person of Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Right? The wee little man. He, too, was wealthy. Jesus, too, met him. And in response to God's salvation, Jesus Christ, what does Zacchaeus do? He sells all that he has. He pays back those. He's cheated out of his money. He, he gives the profits that he received to the poor. Zacchaeus entrusted himself to Jesus and entered into the kingdom of God. But the rich ruler here refused to follow Jesus. And it says he went away very sad. Well, this encounter prompts Jesus then to explain to his disciples the difficulty of entering into the kingdom of God. In verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Entering into the kingdom of God is a matter of great difficulty. In fact, Jesus even illustrates this with another analogy in verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That metaphor there uses some things that are very, very common in that culture. The camel would have been sort of the the, the largest land animal in this part of the world at that time. The eye of a needle would have been sort of the, the smallest opening, the smallest hole that a person could imagine or envision in this part of the world. Obviously, this illustration is not foreign to us because we know what those things look like. And a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. Jesus goes on in verse 27 to say that it is impossible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. In man's own efforts, by means of his own self-righteousness, it is impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, there's a better chance... For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than there is for a person to enter into the kingdom. And what's the chance of, of a camel going through the eye of a needle? It is zero percent. If that is impossible, then it is even more impossible for a man by his own efforts to enter into the kingdom. And so we can understand then why the disciples despair. In verse 26, you have that, you have that uh, someone, uh, th- those who heard it, those in the crowd who heard it, said, then, who can be saved? There's this sense of despair. Now, go back again to verse 24 and verse 25, because Jesus, when he initially makes those statements, applies them to the wealthy. It is difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It is difficult for one who has wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. But in the Old Testament, how is wealth understood? Remember Job, for instance, right? Wealth is one of the ways in which a person could understand or experience God's blessings. God's blessings in the Old Testament were more tangible. Things like long life, good health, a big family. Wealth would be another one of those markers of being blessed by God. So in their mindset, this rich ruler would be someone who was blessed by God, someone whom God favored because he had bestowed great wealth upon him. And so from their minds, if those who are the examples, who are the paragons of God's blessing can't make it in, what about the rest of us who are down here? What about those of us who don't have the signs of God's wealth? What about those of us who are poor? What about those of us who have given everything to follow after you? If there's no way for the wealthy to get in, how can any of us get in? That's the despair. If these people who we think have the best chance to make it in can't make it in, then what hope is there for any of us? And that's where Jesus affirms in verse 27, the impossibility of salvation for anyone. What is impossible with man. If every person were left to himself to try to enter into the kingdom of God by their own works or in their own strength, it would be more than difficult. It would be impossible. We would all be doomed. We would become hopeless just like the disciples. But Jesus goes on and continues What is impossible with man is possible with God. God is able. He is able to save. What a great song we sang this morning, Bruce. He is mighty to save. He is able to save. He is able to give eternal life. He is able to bring us into His kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. What we are unable to do, God does for us. Our ability to enter the kingdom is not dependent upon what we do, but it is instead dependent upon what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. That's us. That's me and you. Not only are we incapable of keeping God's commandments perfectly, but we have gone out of our way to break them purposely. Jesus took on human flesh In order to keep God's commands faithfully for us, not one jot or tittle was left unfulfilled. Jesus did what God required of us, but what we were incapable of doing. And when He had obeyed God's commands perfectly, what did He do? He went to the cross for us, to atone for our sins, to save us from God's wrath, to bring us into His kingdom so that we might inherit eternal life. God did all of it. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. That's the theme of the Bible. Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord. It is His work. What is impossible with man is possible with God. But so notice that receiving this gift does come at a cost. That if we would have salvation full and free, we must follow Jesus. That part of the call to the rich ruler still applies. Jesus calls us to come follow him. That's what the rich ruler really needed to do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Come, follow me. I give salvation. Come, follow me. Receive it from me. Peter, in fact, here reminds Jesus of what the disciples had done to follow Jesus already. See, we have left our homes and followed you. Unlike the rich ruler, the disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. They have not abandoned everything in acts of self-righteousness. They have abandoned all because this was the call of salvation. As we see, we go back again to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus called them to come follow him, he said to all, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There's a cost in following Jesus. He's done it for us, but there is a cost involved. When we acknowledge Him as Lord, we cede all authority over our lives to Him. What He leads us to do, we must follow no matter what. And though following Jesus exacts a tremendous cost, it anticipates a tremendous reward. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus says that, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of, me, of my kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. What we forsake, we gain in rich abundance, both now now, and eternally. The reward of this life probably will not be, may not be, wealth. That would seem to run contrary to Jesus' promises and warnings. But think about what we receive in this life because of salvation. The earthly relationship, again, it's a little different for us in the 20, 20th century, 21st century American Christians. It's sort of a, a birthright To become a Christian, right? Praise God for Christian families. Where we can see kids generationally pass where the gospel passes from one generation to the next. But in many cultures, especially in the first century culture, to follow Jesus meant the breaking off of relationships. Those relationships were probably forsaken. Children, parents, those who followed Jesus were cut off. But what do we gain? We gain a new family. We gain new relationships in this spiritual family that we call the church. The means to meet our needs that we lose when we forsake all to follow Jesus are provided for by the family of God. So in this life, we are more than blessed. We are blessed beyond what we lose, what comes at a cost. And then when this life comes to an end and we enter into eternal life, we realize the full treasure in heaven that Christ promised for us in the Gospel. So brothers and sisters, it is a difficult thing to enter into the kingdom of God. Let's never forget that. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But the hope that exists for all people is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is God who has brought us to his kingdom. It is God who laid out the path for us. It is God who led us by the hand. It is God who opened the door for us. It is God who walked us through to the other side. Because of Him, we have eternal life. Praise be to God for that. Praise be to God for that. Let us also go and forth in His power to those who need Him to share this great news that what is difficult for them, that what is impossible for them is possible with God they too can respond in faith and repentance and inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when there, the text may seem hopeless for us, there is always good news. That what is difficult, that what is impossible with us is possible with you. You are the one who is mighty to save. You are the one who has made salvation a reality for us from beginning to end, from A to Z, from start to finish, Lord. You've done it. I pray that your people this morning would just be, be filled with joy at what you have done. That they would feel empowered and emboldened and courageous, Lord, to walk out this new way of life. That they would be ready and willing, Lord, to humble themselves and count the cost to follow Jesus, knowing that the reward... is far greater than what we could ever experience from the world. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to celebrate it. Help us to walk in its truth. Help us to proclaim it. Lord, there are many in our lives, many that we know personally, many in our communities, many in our jobs, who need this message of hope. And I pray you'd help us to take it to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you take Jesus out of the equation, no one comes to God, right? We're all condemned. We're all sitting under his wrath. Our destiny is nothing but hell and the eternal torment that comes from our own sinfulness. But what did God do? He says he sent his son into the world, that the Son of God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did he do that? To go to the cross to make the way of salvation possible. That's what we celebrate here. We celebrate here the way that Jesus made for us. Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter 11, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us come and celebrate the Lord's table.